Thank you, Bethany. It's been such an honor to serve you over these last two years and uh, really a joy to get to be with you. So um, I'm so grateful for that, and I'm grateful to get to, get to share God's word with you this morning. Uh, so throughout Lent, we have been going through the Formed in the Wilderness series as we have journeyed together through the book of Exodus as the people of God. This sermon is the second part of the Ten Commandments, really the last six commandments that all involve relationships with one another. The title is Formed in Community, Imitating God in Relationship. So we, with six commandments, we have a lot of meat to get through, so get your metaphorical steak knives ready so you can get through it together. Uh, let me pray for us. God, uh, we thank you for your word that you have for us this morning. We know that this is a lot to take in and that with your law, um, in order to follow it, we need humble hearts. So God, we pray that you would prepare the soil of our hearts to hear your word, to be able to take it in and produce fruit from it, to become more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So many see the Ten Commandments as a set of restrictive rules that really just take all the fun out of Christianity, rather than seeing it as something that allows them to enjoy the fullness of life. It's a lot similar, though, to maybe like pool rules posted at a public pool. There we see rules like no food or drink, no glass, no alcohol, no pets, no dogs, no running or horseplay, no spitting, spouting water. And i got to love this when it says no one suspected of having a communicable disease is allowed in the water. Now someone who's never swum at a pool before might think like, man, there's so many rules at this pool. No one wants us to have any fun. We can't even run. But really, we know that they're just a set of guidelines to allow everyone to be safe and healthy so they can enjoy the pool as a community. In the same way, after being saved from Egypt, the Israelites needed to know how to live in the land that they were going to possess with one another. We also need a set of boundaries to know how to experience the fullness of life that God has for us in relationship. Now, many of us might think that we're pretty good at following the rules, but there are some signs to show that we're not really experiencing that fullness of life that God has for us. Maybe we're working hard and we're a good rule follower, all in in with your relationship with God, maybe participating or even leading a house group, you have your daily quiet time, but then there's that one relationship that you tend to try to avoid or aren't willing to reconcile. Or maybe there's that one hidden sin that you're just not ready to give up. In the last six of the Ten Commandments, God used a secular concept of covenant to teach the Israelites kingdom ethics, in which they were to imitate God through their relationships with one another. In the new covenant under Jesus Christ, the ethical foundation remains the same. We're called to imitate God in our relationships with one another. But how do we do this? So the text offers three principles for relationships with one another. But before we look at those principles, let's take a deeper look at the background of a covenant. So many think that the concept of covenant is something that God created in the Bible in order to work with the Israelites. But a little digging into history shows that it's actually not true. The covenants were actually very common in the ancient Near East, 
It was a form of a secular contract between people groups. You see, the ancient Near East was a patriarchal society where family was the strongest bond. So if you wanted to make a lifelong contract with someone, the way you did it was to make them kin or family. So this is actually where we get a marriage covenant today. You take two separate entities and bring them together to form one family. See, God entered into culture and used language that was familiar to the Israelites to teach them about who he was and how he wanted them to relate with one another. As we remember from last week, Pastor Scott shared that these Ten Commandments were rules for a relationship with a God who loved them and cared for them. Now, the foundation for this covenant was in Exodus 19, as Pastor Revel just read to us. Here we get the essence of the Ten Commandments. He says, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So a priest is someone who mediates God to others. So if they were a kingdom of priests, they were supposed to go to the nations and imitate God to the nations around them by how they lived. So how do they do this? In Leviticus 19, it says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Their holiness is to imitate God's holiness in everyday life. So now let's look at those principles of how they were to imitate God's holiness. So with each principle, as we go through the commandments, we will compare the ancient Near East laws, the Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant, and then the laws under the New Covenant, which Jesus introduced in the Sermon on the Mount. So in, in these comparisons, we're going to see this forward progression of holiness as God shows them how they were to imitate him in their lives with one another. So in this patriarchal society, the primary relationships were parent-child and spousal. So let's look at our, these Ten Commandments to see how they were to imitate God in these primary relationships. So first, Exodus 20, verse 12, it says, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So if we look at other laws in the ancient Near East, they're all concerned with disrespectful attitudes towards one's, one's own father and older men in general. They never address one's mother or older women. But in the Old Testament, every time it says to honor your parents, it always says both father and mother. So for example, in Deuteronomy twenty-one eighteen, it addresses the punishment for a rebellious son who does not obey both his father and mother. This honor means to submit to one's parents as one submits to God with total obedience. And then in the new covenant, Jesus takes this further. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But if you say that anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So what Jesus is saying here is that instead of financially providing for their parents, people were just devoting that money to God and then not taking care of their aging parents. He's saying honoring isn't just lip service. You must take care of your parents and financially provide for them in their old age. You must be faithful in word and deed. 
Another commandment which addresses this faithfulness is 2014 in Exodus. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we need to give a little de- definition here of, defini- or of adultery in the Old Testament. So this refers to consensual sexual relationship between a married or betrothed woman and a man who's not her husband. This doesn't address single women or rape or anything like that. Now, in the ancient Near East, faithfulness to one's spouse was critical because it maintained a functioning patriarchal society. In addition, a wife was the property of her husband. But in the Old Testament, God expresses the the importance of faithfulness in marriage because he is faithful to Israel. There are many metaphors about Israel as God's bride, especially in the prophets. And he demonstrates his faithfulness to Israel even though she is unfaithful to him. Thus, faithfulness is one of the primary ways we demonstrate or we imitate God. Then in the New Covenant, Jesus takes this further. He says, be faithful not just in action, but in heart, in motive, and in thought. But more on that in our last principle. So our first point is that we imitate God through faithfulness. This principle expresses that if we are not faithful to our primary relationships, then we are no different from the secular culture around us. We would be dishonoring our parents and divorcing our spouses like everyone else. So how do we do this? Here are some questions for personal reflection regarding this principle. Am I faithful in thought and action and word to my parents, to my spouse? This first principle addresses faithfulness to our primary relationships, but what about when someone wrongs us? or takes or breaks something important to us. This takes us to the second principle. So when I was in college, um, I had taken a dance class, and at the end of the term, our dance instructor invited everyone over to our house for a social, like a tea event. And at this event, one of the girls had backed up into an end table and knocked over a hand-painted dish, sending it to the floor, and it was shattered. The tension in the room was palpable. And not only that, but the girl who had broken this dish was really insecure and timid. The wrong reaction would have broken her. But our instructor, when she saw that the dish had fallen, just said, oh, nothing sacred, and then just moved on in conversation like nothing had happened. This short yet powerful encounter in a class has made a lasting impression on my life. For she was communicating that while she had worldly goods of material and sentimental value, because we could see that she was a world traveler by everything in her home, they were nothing in value to her in comparison to the people around her. My husband Levi and I have held strongly to this principle. Anytime one of our young children breaks something or takes a marker to our couch, we'll take a deep breath and look at each other and just say, there's nothing sacred. This next principle demonstrates the sacredness of life and relationships over things. So this next commandment we'll address is Exodus 20, verse 15. It says, you shall not steal. Now, when we compare to laws again, the theft laws in the ancient Near East, any time someone was guilty, punishment required mutilation, beating, or death. But in the Mosaic Covenant, the punishment was significantly more humane and that it was only 
reparation of what was stolen plus some additional. There was never punishment that involved a physical beating or death. For example, in Exodus 22, verse 1, it says, Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So what God is saying is that even though that ox is that owner's livelihood, it's not more valuable than the thief's life. Then the new covenant, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, takes this to the opposite extreme. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is not only saying, do not steal, but do not even possess anything that can be stolen. The essence of this law is that we don't actually own anything, but are rather stewards of that which God owns. We should not possess anything on earth at all. No thing has, or no thing is sacred. The next commandment that shows this same principle is Exodus 20, verse 13. It says, you shall not murder. Now, in the ancient Near East, laws surrounding murder always involved capital punishment. And while the same was true in the Mosaic Covenant, the reason for it was different. You see, human life holds value in the Bible because man is made in the image of God. So to kill a man is like killing a god. Now, this tends to be an easy one at first sight for a lot of us because I would say most people have not murdered someone until we read the law in the new covenant from Jesus. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So in the new covenant, to hate your brother is to murder. And then if this wasn't enough, Jesus even takes this further. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These commandments illustrate our second point today, which is we imitate God through valuing life and relationships. We are to hold our relationships with one another as the most sacred things in our lives. More sacred than our inheritance or stuff. More sacred than our comfort or our need to be right. So some questions for reflection as you think of how to apply this. Do I hold any possessions in my life as sacred? What would it look like to let that go? Do I hold hatred in my heart against a parent or sibling or even an enemy? What does it look like for me to pursue reconciliation in that relationship? So while these first two principles address right behavior, we know that experiencing the fullness of life that God has for us 
goes beyond behavior. It starts with a heart. So this takes us to our last principle for ethical living. The last commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This last commandment shows that God not only cares about faithful worshipers, which we see in the first three commandments, and those who do not commit gross sins against their neighbors, which we see in the next six commandments, but he cares about purity of mind and heart. Now, when we look at the laws that were in the ancient Near East at the time, this law is unparalleled. You simply can't find it anywhere else. However, in the Mosaic Covenant, what's interesting is it's the only commandment that doesn't have a stated punishment because it's only between the individual and God. But once again, we see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus takes this further. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So even though the Old Testament didn't talk about punishment at all, Jesus is talking about the punishment that we should self-inflict if we have unholy desire. Now, some might say, like, well, I mean, does desire, like, really matter? I mean, I'm not actually going to do anything about it, right? But James would disagree. In James 1, he says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away and enticed, or dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's like in Spokane, there's this wildlife refuge center called Cattails, where they take uh, rescued wild cats and other animals that oftentimes people will see, you know, a little cougar cub out in the wild and be like, oh, it's so cute. I want to take it home and keep it as a pet. And they're like raising the little cougar and they're giving it milk and they start to eat solid food. And the next thing you know, the cougar wants to eat them for breakfast. James is saying the same thing about sin. You can't keep a pet sin. Like a wild animal, that desire always grows and takes over. And if you don't kill it first, it will kill you. Our third point is we imitate God through holy desire. All sinful desire must be killed. We must go to drastic measures to cut off sin in our lives. Unfortunately, we don't have to go to our neighbor's house to covet. Sinful desire can be birthed at our fingertips on our devices. So if Jesus was here today, he would say, if your internet causes you to sin, burn your computer. If your phone causes you to sin, smash it with a hammer. If online shopping causes you to sin, cut up your credit cards. But how do we do this? How do we kill all evil desire in our hearts? The best way to attack this is accountability, to find someone you know closely, to tell them how you're struggling. There are so many who struggle with this. One research shows that roughly 70% of church-going men and 20% of church-going women struggle with 
pornography use on a regular basis. If this is you, you are not alone. Find accountability. Covenant Eyes is an app and a software that you can download that with an accountability partner, you can receive freedom from that desire. If jealousy is your issue, focus on gratitude for the things that God has given you whenever you're tempted to covet your neighbor's things. Now, this is all so much to do. How do we possibly imitate God in every relationship and every desire? There is no way that we can be perfect as God is perfect on our own. So I want to share with you my own experience with this and how I have disobeyed the Ten Commandments. You see, I've always been a really good rule follower. Um, But somewhat recently, God showed me where I had hardness of heart and was way off according to his standards. When I was 24, I was a high school teacher And a member of my staff, who was 48 at the time, had started stalking me. Over a span of two years, he developed an obsession, and though I told him I wasn't interested and had reported him twice to my supervisors, he progressively approached me more often and broke every boundary that was set in place by administration. The second time I reported him, I was treated by one administrator as though I was just seeking attention. She said, if you just tell him no, he will go away. I was humiliated. Since he kept breaking the boundaries in place, I no longer felt safe at work, and now I didn't even have my supervisor to back me up. When my contract had ended at that school, I didn't seek renewal. I went to a totally different district, and I thought that I had left it all behind me. But this was not the case. A year later, I saw him parked outside of my house. I was terrified. All the what-ifs ran through my mind. What was he doing there? How did he know where I lived? How many times had he been there before that I didn't know? I called the cops and ended up getting a restraining order against him. But in the process leading up to my court date, I had to have an escort every time I walked to my car when leaving work. I couldn't sleep at my house because I was afraid that he would be there. Not only was I anxious and terrified, but I was furious, particularly at God. How could he have let this happen to me? After the court proceedings were over, I went on a bike ride and ranted to God for three hours about how angry I was. How could he do that? The spiritual attack I underwent during that time was a sense of hell. I was crushed. So I laid out all of my complaints to him, which he is big enough to handle, by the way. And after all of this, God gave me his response. He said, pray for him. I immediately responded with, no, tell someone else to pray for him because I wish he was dead. And God said again, pray for him. And I'm thinking in my mind, like, how could I do this? Like, God, you know that I would do anything for you. I would go anywhere for you. I would die for you. But you have crossed a line and asking me to pray for him. And I wouldn't do it. And I took a breath. And I said, fine. I pray for him. Immediately, God opened my eyes to see this man's plight. He said to me, This man is my son, just as you are my daughter. 
this man had been a monster to me. But God loves him just as much as he loves me, his child. Then God showed me that he was a man in desperate need of community. And though he had acted inappropriately and did need discipline and strict boundaries, he was not a monster. I was able to forgive him in my heart. You see, while I was really good at following rules, I had disobeyed God's sixth commandment. I had murdered. And God did cross a line in asking me to do this impossible task of praying for him and forgiving him. But here's the good news, church. Jesus crossed the line for us when we were the enemy, when we hurt him. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are able to do the impossible in imitating God in his law because Jesus already did it for us and willingly does it through us. His perfection becomes our perfection when we surrender to him. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, He speaks to our identity just as Moses spoke to the Israelites as they had departed Egypt. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Is God's people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the only way to follow God's law is to imitate him in everyday relationship. For this is how we show who he is to the world. We do this when we imitate his faithfulness, the sacredness of life and relationship, and with holy desire. For some of you, the invitation is to reflect on the sacrifice that Christ made for you when he died on the cross and crossing that line of love for you. Receive the life that he has for you by confessing your sin, surrendering to him and following him as your Lord. For others who have already received that life, ask yourself, what's a relationship in your life that's broken? One which God is tugging at your heart to pursue reconciliation and forgiveness. Or maybe what's a hidden sin or desire that you need to cut off entirely and seek some accountability? Are you willing to surrender yourself no matter the cost because Christ did it for you? As we close in this last song of worship, take some time to reflect on Christ's reckless love for you so that you can imitate him by loving others. Lay it out before him. Maybe you need to go on a bike ride and rant to him for three hours. He can handle it. But give it over to God and receive the fullness of life that he has for you in it. I can attest to you that it is good. Let's pray. God, we surrender ourselves before you, Lord. God, we want to be perfect as you are perfect, and we know that we can only do it through you. Help us to do that, God, to imitate you in everyday life with our, in our relationships and our desires. In your name we pray.